Good afternoon. It's Friday the 22nd of September 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, Brian Gerrish. And by video link, we've got Vanessa Bailey from Damascus. Now, we're going to get kicked off uh, today with the media bill. Now, the draft media bill was published uh, in March, uh, but this is now starting to make progress. And uh, we've had a speech from the uh, Secretary of State for, Di for Digital Culture, Media and Sport um, to tell us all about it. But before we go into the details of this, uh, I just wanted to uh, go through a little bit of history because, of course, uh, going back to 2018, uh, we had uh, the wonderful Matt Hancock uh, launching the Karen Cross Review. Now, this is a review into the press, the, the print press mainly. Uh, and this was because he was very concerned about, as you can see on the quote here, he was very concerned about disinformation, also known as fake news, but he was also very concerned uh, that the mainstream press was not able to compete with the disruptive new media organizations that were coming out at that time, that they were losing ad revenue, uh, and also that social media companies weren't providing them with uh, sufficient revenue to keep them going. So he was very worried that they were going to actually go out of business. Uh, so anyway, we've put him back on screen here for a second. The first area he said that I want to look into is accuracy, and he's talking about disinformation. Uh, and then he went on to say, if an individual published it online, it would be untouched by media regulation. So he's very concerned that uh, small uh, journalists, uh, you know, uh, not, not big corporations, in other words, can effectively compete with the mainstream media. Uh, and then he went on to say, I tremble at the thought of a media regulated by the state. Now, that, he's actually trembling with excitement there, I'm quite certain. That's what he meant by that. In a time of malevolent forces in uh, politics, I get this wrong, and I fear for the future of our liberal democracy. Uh, well, he was very excited about leveling the playing field, leveling up here. Uh, the Karen Cross view, he said, will explore whether intervention may be required to safeguard the future of our free and independent press. And of course, uh, they did intervene. They intervened uh, during the COVID period by uh, absolutely bombarding the mainstream media with advertising revenue to a degree they hadn't seen for a very long time. Now, in parallel with that, then, of course, we saw the online harms white paper come out, and this eventually became the online safety bill, and that eventually became the online safety, or it's just about to become the online safety act. So this is back in 2018, and the government is unveiling tough new measures to ensure the UK is the safest place in the world to be online. And part of the thing that they were talking about was online disinformation, but more importantly, they were talking about fines for companies. We've mentioned that in the last couple of days, but they were also talking about uh, the equalizing the playing field for the BBC and other public service broadcasters as opposed to alternative media broadcasters, which brings us then to the media bill. Uh, and here it is. Uh, the, in fact, the bill hasn't been formally published yet. There is a draft, uh, but this is the House of Commons library briefing on it. And this is the bit that I want to highlight uh, because the media bill, they say, was included in the background uh, briefing notes of the Queen's speech of the 10th of May, 2022. According to the briefing notes, the bill would, among other things, enable the sale of Channel 4, uh, update the UK's public broadcasting framework for the digital age. This is the key one. Enable Ofcom to introduce a video on demand code to protect UK audiences from harmful material. Um, so, uh, of course, the government has now announced that Channel 4 is going to remain in public ownership. But it's this aspect uh, of video on demand, of the video on demand code uh, that I want to discuss here. Because if we go back, if you're not that you could possibly forget, Brian, if, if we go back to uh, 2014, uh, the UK column 
uh, became the target of an organization called ATVA. This was the Authority for Television on Demand. And this was a small, limited company that was uh, tasked by Ofcom to regulate on-demand content. And they were regulating things like Amazon Prime and whatnot, uh, but also uh, regulating the pornography industry in the UK. Uh, but they decided, following a complaint uh, from someone who remains anonymous to us, uh, about our coverage of the Holly Gregg sexual abuse scandal, uh, that uh, somebody complained about us and Atvod decided that we needed to be regulated. Um, so they approached us and uh, sent us various demands uh, to register with them. Uh, and if, they, if we weren't prepared to register with them, um, they were going to fine us a significant amount of money. Um, what happened then was that we decided not to be regulated with them uh, we took down all our content from YouTube at the time and made some uh, content which described, explained what Advod was and so on. As a result, uh, Advod received uh, quite a number of telephone calls from the general public, from our viewers and listeners. And as a result of that, uh, some months afterwards, Advod, Advod was in fact shut down and uh, the regulation of video on demand content was taken over once again by Ofcom. Now, the whole notion of, because what Advod had attempted to say to us was, well, you're, you're very te television-like and therefore you're competing for your news coverage with the BBC. And I said, this is ridiculous. How can you possibly be suggesting that we're competing with a four billion pound uh, corporation? Um, but they weren't prepared to accept that argument and still attempted now, uh, to regulate. Now that uh, regulatory threat has disappeared since 2014. Um, but it's now back. And I think this is a major danger if it, it goes through in the media bill. Now, there, wasn't, there was a significant response to the online safety bill, which resulted in the removal of the whole concept of, uh, of uh, legal but harmful content, which was undefined and would be uh, regulated by the online safety bill. Nonetheless, the online safety bill still has a lot in it, which is pretty negative as far as freedom of speech is concerned. Uh, and uh, it has passed, I would suggest that people really need to start getting organized around the media build now and prevent this because uh, this is, that what this is about is leveling the playing field for legacy media, which really shouldn't exist anymore, uh, and, uh, and keeping them going while dealing with and pushing uh, smaller organizations such as UK Column, but many, many others under a regulatory burden that they couldn't really sustain. Yeah, and just to reinforce the fact that it was, in fact, thousands of calls that Atfob received that finally, I think, pushed them over the edge and uh, they went quiet and were subsequently taken over. So it was the polite action of many, many UK column viewers that took on Atvod that actually caused that dynamic whereby they quietly disappeared from view. And I think this is the reality for the future because there's no doubt UK Column and other outlets are going to be attacked by a government which doesn't want any uh, counter opinion or criticism of its actions or policies. Uh, so, no, yes. So one of the things that the government is doing uh, up to the point where they lay the uh, legislation formally in parliament, uh, they've launched uh, a consultation on the regulation of additional electronic program guides. Um, so let's just look at the summary of this. They're saying, given the landscape of, chining, ch sorry, of changing technology and increasing risk to audiences of unregulated content appearing on television, 
Uh, the government is consulting on whether and how to use existing powers that allow it to update which electronic program guides are regulated in the UK. Uh, this could uh, result in more consistent protections for audiences and level the playing field with traditional broadcasters who are already required to follow Ofcom regulations. So you very much get the, the, the theme here. This is about leveling the, what they would like to say is leveling the playing field. Uh, the fact that the budgets are so different in these cases, of course, is irrelevant to them. So anyway, uh, I suggest that everybody reads this consultation and if they'd like to uh, uh, take part in it, it ends on the 15th of October. Uh, and oh, Sorry, was it 15th of October? Sorry, 15th of November. Uh, and uh, well, there are various ways to respond. You can respond online. You can respond to the email address on screen at the moment or uh, to the uh, physical address. Okay. Thank you for that, Mike. Well, that's uh, it's serious times because many people say to us uh, what is going to happen in the future. And we've always looked into the future with the with the knowledge, really, that uh, the regulators are going to come for anybody who dares challenge the government line. And that's that's what we're absolutely seeing from this. Well, uh, I'm going to say a big thank you to um, Mike from Slough who uh, kindly sent me through a letter. This is from Dame Caroline Dynish. Uh, and um, what is this about? Well, she pushed out um, a letter to uh, the chief executive of Rumble, and it was about Russell Brand. Uh, we won't go through the whole thing, but she starts off by saying she's writing concerning the serious allegations regarding Russell Brand in the context of his being a content provider on Rumble with more than 1.4 million followers. So you can see the uh, concern here is to do with the, um, the impact that Russell Brand has for those 1.4 million uh, followers. Um, but it goes on to say, um, uh, uh, however, we're also looking at his use of social media, including on Rumble, where he issued his preemptive response to the accusations made against him for the Sunday Times and Channel 4's dispatches. While we recognise that Rumble is not the creator of the content published by Mr Brand, we are concerned that he may be able to profit from his content on the platform. So there's no, um, there's no real crime has yet been identified. Maybe that's... Uh, that's uh, going to happen. But essentially, in goes the knife. And ultimately, this letter is asking uh, whether he's able to monetize, Russell Brand is able to monetize his content on Rumble. And um, she's saying that basically, we need to know. However, what the dame didn't do is bother to discuss with the Culture, Media and Sport Committee what she was about to do. And uh, we're now seeing in the uh, reports this morning that uh, she's in trouble for taking action alone. But uh, that demonstrates, I think, her haste to get that knife stuck in as far as she could. So she wrote to Rumble. She also wrote to TikTok. Uh, Rumble's response uh, from the chief executive was very firm uh, and said, you must be joking. Uh, this is not our concern and we're not going to get involved in your uh, attempts to silence freedom of speech. Now, what they said was, uh, that they don't agree with what everybody says uh, that produces content for the Rumble platform, but they were very clear uh, that they were not going to be attempting to censor anyone. 
uh, or demonetize anyone on the behalf of the British government. Yeah. And if we may, might just pop that back on screen briefly. I think the final sentence here is important because she says, we'd also like to know what Rumble is doing to ensure that creators are not able to use the platform to undermine the welfare of victims of inappropriate and potentially illegal behavior. And yet if, if, <laughs> if we look at what action the government has ever taken to protect really vulnerable young people and children, uh, from sexual abuse, what we find is a constant wall of silence. So in her letter is this hook that all this is happening in order to protect victims, children, young people. This is the great lie, uh, because if the government was really concerned about doing this, it would be taking action across the board, but it doesn't. Um, now, uh, Kit Clarenberg in the Grey Zone, thanks to Vanessa for sending this to me. Uh, has covered this uh, in this article, Intel-linked UK official pushing uh, censorship of Russell Brand. Uh, so, of course, uh, they're talking about uh, Caroline Dynage, uh, of course, chair of the Culture, Media, Sport uh, Select Committee. But, uh, of course, she is married to uh, Mark Lancaster, uh, who is Armed Forces Minister, uh, Major General John Mark Lancaster, to give his full name. Um, and uh, he is Baron Lancaster of Kimbolton. Um, and, well, he was at one point uh, Deputy Commander of 77th Brigade uh, from June 2018 to, to July 2020. He was Lieutenant Commander at that point. Uh, and then he was appointed Chair of the Reserve Forces 2030 Review in January 2020. He was then promoted to Brigadier on the 1st of August 2020 and served as Director General uh, or, sorry, Deputy Director Joint War sorry Joint Warfare at UK Strategic Command until August 2023, uh, and uh, then on the 26th of June this year, it was announced that he's been appointed as Director of Reserves to the rank of Major General. But the point is, he served uh, for two years as Deputy Commander of uh, 77th Brigade. And well, what is going on here? Was this action taken by her on behalf of him? Uh, well, they're in bed together, it would appear. Yes. Um, but yeah, this is the key question, isn't it, Mike? Because during lockdown, of course, 77 Brigade declared, openly declared it was going to work for the government in order to clo help close down, disrupt, destroy any social media that was considered to be a challenge to the government's policy. Uh, now, uh, what I will say is, is that at least Mark, Ant Mark Lancaster has declared his interest in Parliament as a Deputy Commander of Se 77 Brigade. This was in a parliamentary answer, uh, unlike Tobias Elwood. And of course, we're still waiting to hear from Tobias Elwood whether he has actually served, uh, been, been uh, taken off the reserve list and served while he's been sitting as an MP, uh, because he is determined that he's entitled to a private public life. Uh, yeah. And uh, well, and we'll it, just add on the end there notes that Mark Lancaster ref refers to the fusion doctrine. Yes. So, so these people know exactly what we're doing, but we've now got the British Army used as a weapon against uh, the British public. Anybody who dares challenge the government, that's the reality. Um, okay, let's welcome Vanessa to the programme. And uh, Vanessa, you've been following the UN General Assembly and particularly uh, Mr. Zelensky's appearance. Yes, so the first image is actually taken of the audience when Zelensky was speaking. And funnily enough, since I put this together yesterday, Seymour Hersh has just uh, published a new article in which he describes 
the half-empty uh, house uh, to, to, to listen to Zelensky's speech, which I have to say um, was very focused on the nuclear threat from Russia. So, so just take a good look at the number of people in the audience. And then let's have a look at this uh, production um, by uh, Ukraine TV, which shows Zelensky speaking. So let's roll that, Mike. Не розгортати цю зброю, не розповсюджувати, не допускати погрози нею, не допускати тренування для того, щоб забезпечити ядерне роззброєння. І це хороша стратегія, але, але вона не повинна бути єдиною стратегією. So basically because uh, Zelensky was talking to, to a diminished audience, many people actually left uh, the area when he started speaking. Um, the Ukraine uh, TV channels basically edited the clip to show uh, a much bigger audience to another speaker. But the problem is they forgot to remove Zelensky. So Zelensky at 14 seconds in this clip is actually listening to himself speaking. This was discovered by, I think, the, the uh, Double D Geopolitics on Telegram, but a number of people were sharing it. Um, I just find it absolutely insane. Um, but what I also wanted to look at following uh, the UNGA speech by Zelensky, and bear in mind I said his focus was very much on the alleged uh, threat of nuclear uh, warfare, of course, uh, you know, instigated by Russia, not by the West at all. Um, to look at this article that I discovered on CNN of all places, and as you know, I wouldn't normally be uh, showing a CNN article, but this is interesting for one reason. So the title is Opinion, The Myth of the Wonder Weapon, and it's written by um, an analyst from Chatham House, if we can move to the next slide. Yes, yeah, so, um, so Yeah, Keir Giles who works with Russia and Eurasia program of Chatham House, which of course is an international affairs think tank in the UK, I would say heavily connected to intelligence agencies and directly to the government uh, and influences uh, the government. He is author of Russia's War on Everybody and What It Means for You and the views expressed in this commentary are his own. But his views are very interesting. So he talks about the mass supply of weapons, like, for example, HIMARS, Patriot Air Defense, Abrahams tanks, cluster munitions, F-16 fighter jets to Kyiv. And then uh, just moving on to the next slide, he then actually, very interestingly, he emphasizes the fact, now bear in mind, he's um, a contributor to, to Chatham House. He says the UK in particular has consistently led the drive to give Ukraine what it asked for as well as disregarding U.S. concerns about what Ukraine can strike with what it is given. This is an extraordinary admission here. He goes on basically, if we move on to the next slide, in, in this, I, I thoroughly recommend reading this article because it gives a, a huge number of pointers as to who is really um, driving the war in Ukraine. And I would say from this article and from Seymour Hersh's recent article, it's not the US, it's the UK. 
And I would say that that was also uh, prevalent in Syria. If you remember in 2017, Trump was talking about withdrawing from Syria, and suddenly we had the Khan Shehun chemical attack, alleged chemical attack, which was produced by the White Helmet, the, the predominantly MI6 uh, created group embedded with Al Qaeda and other armed groups. Um, so he goes on to say, Zelensky knows there's a risk that the window of opportunity may eventually start to close on backing from Washington itself, um, basically because there's a potential change of presidency and political trends are likely to change. We know that Trump is talking about ending the war in Ukraine. Now, again, the emphasis is on the failure to restart European defense industries in earnest, which means searching ever harder and wider around the world for munitions for Ukraine. So he's also advocating an increase in defense, defense, not offense, of course, production. Uh, he comes back to the UK. For example, in the UK, eager support is constrained by 30 years of defense cuts that I know UK Column has been talking about for years that have left the cupboard bare. Critical deficiencies in munition stocks were identified well before 2022. Supplying howitzers to Ukraine necessitated an emergency purchase of replacements from Sweden. And there are strong indications that the UK's tiny donation of 14 Challenger 2 tanks represented a substantial proportion of the number of tanks the British Army still had in working order. Remember, this guy is from Chatham House. He's not an uninformed commentator. He also then comes back to this need for increasing uh, defense uh, production. Most Western leaders have done an exceptionally poor job of explaining to their electorates that that means huge reinvestment in defense and the industry supporting it is vital and overdue. As the US becomes increasingly focused on China, another clue, the defense of Europe will increasingly rely on those frontline states, which of course includes Poland. We've talked about the, the possibility that Poland will be pushed into the breach that has been left by the death or, or you know, the, the death count of Ukrainian uh, soldiers. Uh, that understand the threat and are willing to take it seriously. Well, I'm not quite sure how seriously right now Poland is backing off on arms supply. So it's an interesting reflection, I think, of what actually is really going on. And it does appear that the UK is driving this campaign in Ukraine. And of course, a lot of it, Vanessa, is sheer desperation because the Ukrainian mm. counter-offences has failed. There is no doubt about that with huge losses. And Ukraine's now at the point where it simply doesn't have the wherewithal to continue the battle. And we wait to see what Russia's going to do. But yeah, the West has given up its defence industry and now it's paying the price, if we believe the traditional argument. Well, let's have a look at uh, what Richie Sunak is uh, is um, bothered about, and really it's not to do with Ukraine. Uh, he's been uh, talking, uh, not least in front of the sky cameras, um, about net zero, but his audience, as you'll note, uh, look remarkably woolly. So he's been preaching to the sheep, but it's clear that the flock are not impressed. Let's have a look at the first video clip. 
I'm here at Rittle College in Essex talking to apprentices who work in our farming sector and I've been talking to them about the changes that I announced yesterday, ensuring that we're going to deliver net zero but do so in a proportionate pragmatic way that minimises the impact on working families, all while hitting what are world-leading targets. Now, as I've been talking to them, these changes are particularly important for our rural and farming communities who were facing huge costs and are the backbone of our local economies. Now, I'm going to make the big decisions that are right for the long-term interests of our country, even if those are difficult, because that's how we're going to bring change. That's how we're going to build a better future for our children. Well, there we are. The sheep clearly understood that what he was talking was sheer nonsense. But if, if um, sorry, if we just bring, uh, uh, sorry, let, let me just jump back here. Sorry, if we just bring up a bit of comment on screen. Uh, he said he's committed to delivering net zero, but he's not going to tell people the truth about what net zero really is. He's not going to talk about rewilding the countryside and destroying productive farmland. He's not going to talk about meat and dairy consumption quotas, and he's not going to talk about travel restrictions. Uh, he went on to say he's going to make big decisions that are right for the long-term interests of the country, even if these are difficult, because that's how we are going to bring change. That's how we're going to bring a better future for our children. Uh, but of course, the reality, he's not actually going to tell the UK public what the change is, because if we look at what's planned with net zero, agenda 2030 and on, it involves the destruction of national identity, our economy, communities and our culture. So Rishi wants to keep that very secretive. Let's have a look at a second clip and we'll make a bit of comment on that. So you're delaying deadlines, but I guess we can still meet our net zero targets. Something there doesn't seem to quite add up. Yeah, we've been through the numbers and we're absolutely confident that we are on track to hit all our international and domestic targets, which, by the way, are world leading. And, and the reason I have confidence in that is because we've over delivered on all of our carbon budgets to date. Despite everyone saying, oh, you might not hit them, we've over delivered on them. Plus, we can see that the costs of some of these new technologies are falling far faster than people have predicted. Offshore wind is a great example of that. Cost today 70% less than we predicted in 2016 and the adoption of new technologies is happening far faster than we thought electric vehicles being another good example so when you put all of that together run the numbers as we have we're confident we're on track to deliver net zero and we can do it now in a more proportionate and pragmatic way that's how we're going to bring people with us maintain consent for it and minimize costs for working families that could have spiraled into the thousands and thousands of pounds i don't think that's right it's very difficult to watch, but I did pay attention to the two sheep in the background that were clearly shaking their heads, and quite rightly so, because, uh, of course, what is he talking about? Sheer nonsense. But let's have a look at some of the things he said there. We're confident we're on track to deliver net zero, and we can do it now in a more proportionate and pragmatic way. That's how we're going to bring people with us, maintain consent for it and minimise costs for working families. Well, this is incredible because if we look at the reality, um, they've never had consent for net zero because it's never been openly debated in uh, Westminster or elsewhere. And of course, the real agenda that Rishi Sunak is simply the puppet for is coming out of the UN, G20 or the World Economic Forum. And these are policies which they daren't put in front of the public in all their glory because the public would reject it out of hand. So Rishi standing in front of the sheep, simply lying about what is really coming down the pipeline and he's going to implement because he's been told to do it. 
by his puppet masters. Uh, a third clip to ram this one home because this is going to change everybody's life if we allow it to go through. Um, experts are doubting those claims. Those who have been appointed to advise you, the Climate Change Committee, they say that you're set to meet your carbon reduction targets. If you implement these policy changes, if you delay these targets, what extra things are going to come in so that we meet those targets? Look, lots of people will have lots of different views on this. We've been through the numbers. We're confident that we are on track to deliver all our targets. And I point out, people have predicted that we'd miss our carbon budgets in the past, but we've actually met every single one of them more than that. We've exceeded all of the ones in the past. But as I said yesterday in this debate, it gets polarised between extremes. There are people who just want to deny climate change is happening. They're wrong. And on the other side, there are people who approach this with a kind of more ideological zeal, where they just don't care about the impact on families. I don't think they're right either. What I've done is pick the pragmatic course to delivering net zero, because I believe in it, and I think the country does and wants to do what's necessary. But they want that done in a fair, proportionate and pragmatic way. That's the course that we are taking. And I think that's the one that will command the broadest amount of support. I think, so I think I need a visit to A&E, Brian. It's sad, isn't it? But do you notice what he did there when he was asked uh, at the front of that interview what was actually coming down the pipeline? He ignored the question and he moved on. What did he start talking about? Let's have a look at it again. Uh, we've exceeded all of our, he was talking about carbon targets. We've exceeded all our uh, targets in the past. But as I said yesterday in this debate, it gets polarised between extreme extremes. There are people that just want to deny climate change is happening. They're wrong. And on the other side, there are people who approach this with a, with a more ideological zeal who don't care about the impact on families. Now, this is really important language because what he is doing is psychologically profiling the people who are coming up and criticising what's happening. And why is he doing that? Because, of course, they're already committed to net zero. They've agreed it out of the country at the global the globalist agenda and now what he's showing you is that they're going to use what i'm calling their world beating political applied psychology to reframe the public into agreeing with the decision and that's what the mind space 2010 policy conservative cabinet office created it that's what it was all about so this man is extremely dangerous because he's bringing in globalist policy, he's deceiving the UK public, and he's prepared to use applied political psychology in order to uh, get us to agree and accept these agendas. Um, people need to be taking on every local conservative association on this particular subject. Um, so let's bring uh, another dangerous man on screen, and that's the king. Uh, because, of course, he's been in France uh, over the last couple of days meeting Macron. There he is. Uh, and this was, uh, of course, getting all the sort of pomp and ceremony in the in the mainstream press. Uh, but in the background, what was going on was uh, there was a gathering at the National Museum of Natural History in Paris where Macron and King Charles heard from various company chief executives and leading organizations about how they are supporting action on tackling climate change and nature loss in emerging and developing economies. So this is an effort to, to uh, do something about uh, Belt and Road or at least change the tack of African countries and so on, South American countries. Uh, now, this uh, is a follow-on meeting from the Climate and Nature Finance uh, Mobilization Forum because actually it's not about climate change really, and it's not about uh, biodiversity either. It's really only about finance. 
uh, and that was held in Windsor back in March. Uh, and it, uh, well, they say it builds on long-standing co uh, collaboration between the UK and France to accelerate action on climate change and protect the natural environment. Um, and so all these financial institutions and philanthrop philanthropists uh, were uh, uh, announcing a range of new investment platforms and initiatives uh, because that's really what it is, City of London stuff. Uh, and of course, this was uh, part and parcel of the uh, Sustainable Markets Initiative. Uh, this is uh, King, well, it was Prince Charles, but now King Charles's uh, initiative to bring $9 trillion of support uh, into transitioning to net zero by 2030 or sooner. Uh, and uh, so far they've provided and mobilized over $2.5 trillion, they claim, in capital as part of those commitments since 2020. Uh, so, of course, this uh, encapsulates uh, Terra Carta, and also because, I mean, just being earthbound is not sufficient. It also encapsulates, encapsulates Astro Carta to make sure that as we, if we move into space, uh, we do so in a sustainable way and make sure that there's no uh, uh, carbon emissions in space either. Uh, I, I find it's nearly unbelievable, this, this stuff, Mike, is real. It's what the king is involved in. He is another one who's clearly in bed with Klaus Schwab and the whole of the uh, net zero policy. Not only is he going to save the planet, he can't save people in this country, but he's going to save the planet. And as you now say, he's going to save space. In fact, I think we need to be saved from the king. Uh, indeed. Now, uh, Macron has been busy, not only meeting King Charles, but a, a couple of days ago, uh, meeting the other king, uh, Starmer, uh, because, of course, he's likely to become the next prime minister, isn't he? Uh, so they were there discussing climate change and a whole bunch of other things. But of course, Keir Starmer doing a little international tour uh, was also uh, meeting uh, Mr. Trudeau in uh, in. It's unpleasant. Was this just before the kiss or afterwards? Uh, it's hard to say, right. uh, but this was obviously in Montreal. Uh, 43 minutes of one-to-one -one talks with uh, the French president and uh, goodness knows how many, one -to how many minutes of one-to-one -one talks with Trudeau. Uh, so he is trying to uh, set himself up as uh, the next uh, king of Britain, I guess. Uh, yeah, so probably if you will, betting type. Um, this is the new prime minister. He was just parading himself around the world. We'll see. Yes. Okay, uh, let's move on. If you like what the UK Column does, you would like to support us, uh, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org, uh, become a member, join us, uh, become a member of the community. Uh, your support very much needed and appreciated. Uh, or you could pick something up at the UK Column shop. Uh, and uh, but in the meantime, do share anything you find on the various platforms, especially ukcolumn.org and ukcolumnextracts.co.uk. Uh, now, uh, this evening, Beginning at six o'clock, uh, we're having an expose of the HPV vaccine. Uh, this is being run uh, with by uh, um, by uh, Children's Health Defence Europe, uh, and of course we're streaming it out. It'll also be on chd.tv. Um, uh, Mary Holland and a bunch of other excellent presenters, doctors, and others, and also some parents of people that have been affected with children that have been affected by the HPV vaccine, uh, giving their evidence this evening. So do come along and watch that if you possibly can. Uh, another reminder of the event taking place in Sweden, uh, sa Friday, Saturday and Sunday, the 29th, 30th and, uh, of September and the 1st of October. Uh, this 30th of September, part of it is going to be live streamed by Oracle Films, uh, but there are residential uh, tickets available if you want to go to that, if you are in Sweden or can get to Sweden. Uh, some fantastic speakers on, on that, as you can see on screen. 
uh, and the details at drsapil.com if you would like to find out more. Okay, thank you for that, Mike. Well, we've also got this one that was sent through to us by Stuart. It's Safe Schools for Kids, End Indoctrination Now. And uh, this is uh, a gathering to discuss the state of education in Glasgow. And of course, education north of the border uh, has all the problems that we're seeing south of the border with the sex, in particular with the sexualization of the children uh, and the drag queens. Um, speakers for this event include social workers, child protection officers, health professionals, educators, parents and activists. And that's on the 28th of September at 1.30 p.m. George Square, Glasgow. So as always, if you're reasonably local and can get along, your presence makes a difference. Uh, where does that take us then? Uh, to, uh, well, yes, a reminder that also on the 30th of September, Matt Campbell and Piers Robinson will be speaking uh, at an event in Camden in London. Uh, this is, uh, the, they will be covering the official story versus the truth of 9-11. Um, so this begins at 1.30 p.m. in Camden Town. Uh, we will have the link for this in the show notes under this program. Uh, so do get along to that if you can as well. And then I just want to remind everybody uh, that we talked about this on Wednesday, the uh, petition to pause the energy bill. Uh, uh, we spoke about this on the news. This, of course, is uh, going to apply uh, pretty stringent uh, requirements for uh, standards, energy standards in private homes, and you won't be allowed to sell your home, for example, if you don't meet the standards, uh, if this goes through. So that had, uh, on Wednesday, 1,000 signatures. It now has just below the 10,000 uh, signatures requiring a government response. But this really needs to get to 100,000 signatures uh, at the very least. We just had a lot of people still don't think um, signing into one of these makes a difference. But in fact, it does, particularly when the response from the public is extremely large. So don't just say, well, it doesn't make any difference. If you take action and you sign up and you get many other people to do it, it does increase pressure on the go government. And the more pressure, the better. Um, Vanessa, let's go back to Ukraine and more specifically Poland, uh, because a uh, bit of a a scandal, a shower of furor has kicked up over uh, uh, grain from Ukraine. Yes. Well, I mean, there has been a furor for some time because of a glut of cheap produce that's coming in from Ukraine that is damaging um, the, the, the ability to, to earn money and to survive of farmers in the neighboring, the five neighboring countries to Ukraine. But this was put out by UKRLeak.org uh, uh, um, on Telegram yesterday. So Poland found harmful substances in Ukrainian grain. Um, the control uh, chamber claims that out of uh, 73 samples imported from Ukraine, salmonella was detected in 17, pesticides in 17 more, GMOs in 11 and myotoxins in six. Um, now, this is interesting. It was picked up by a few people on Twitter. I haven't seen much about it at all uh, in mainstream media, perhaps not surprisingly. Um, but a few Twitter accounts were pointing out that not only is there going to be uh, organophosphate uh, contamination, but also with the supply of depleted uranium weapons, of course, there is likely to also be contamination from that for many years to come. So back, uh, Poland, Slovakia and Hungary will impose their own restrictions on Ukrainian grain imports. 
after the EU Commission decided not to extend a ban affecting Ukraine's five EU neighbors. That ban came in place, uh, I think, back in April. Um, restrictions imposed by the EU in May, sorry, allowed Poland, Bulgaria, Hungary, Romania, and Slovakia to ban domestic sales of Ukrainian wheat, maize, rapeseed, and sunflower seeds while permitting uh, transit of such cargoes for export elsewhere. So let's have a look at one of the reasons why it was banned back then. Banned pesticides found in Ukraine, agri-imports prove a sticky point. Now, what was the, uh, the, the substance that was found? So the two countries are now citing, basically Poland and Slovakia are now citing human as well as animal and plant health concerns as justification for the move, all of which can technically qualify under certain circumstances for an exemption from EU trade law. According to reports, 1,500 tons of wheat imported from Ukraine into Slovakia was found to contain chlorpyrifos, um, which is an organophosphate, a pesticide banned in the EU back in 2020 and also banned in the US now, despite the fact that it was not intended for the EU internal market, but for third countries, which I guess means third world countries. So they obviously don't care what turns up in third world countries. Um, this particular organophosphate attacks the nervous system. It causes headaches, blurred vision, seizures, coma, and death. Uh, it's been linked to utero exposure, which leads to autism and attention disorders, brain disorders. Um, and it could be passed through water, air, food, of course. So, um, you know, clearly there are now um, no controls inside Ukraine on what is being exported. And as I said, with the weapons that are now being used in Ukraine, this is something that we should all be bearing in mind, that we shouldn't be eating produce from Ukraine. Uh, indeed. And I mean, just to, just to add to that, you know, it, it, this has had a massive effect on farming in Poland because, of course, farmers in Poland are yeah. having to stick to the EU standards now. Uh, but in the meantime, the cheapest possible grain has been imported from Ukraine. Yeah. And of course, this... This grain was never intended to be used actually for human consumption, but it is ending up in human food chains. And, and so, you know, uh, mm. but, but on the other, the other point to make here is just very briefly, Vanessa, uh, the Polish mm. government has had to cave in to public uh, angst about this because, uh, of course, they're coming up to a general election <coughs> in the not too distant future. Um, and uh, uh, that's really because we all know how rapidly anti-Russian they are and how pro-Ukrainian they are. Um, so they have had to move on this because of the public backlash. Yeah, I'd, I'd also say, isn't it amazing, though, that this is the situation of agriculture in Ukraine? Because, of course, the West has been boasting that it's been involved in every area of regulation in Ukraine since 2014. And uh, presumably that would have been the safety of, uh, of agricultural products, but maybe not. Mm. Well, let's move on. Sorry, Vanessa. But Sorry, just quickly, the majority of the land now, the arable land, of course, is owned by GMO giants like Monsanto. So again, another early warning um, coming up here. Yeah, as to what's coming. OK, thank you for that. Well, if we return to UK, one of the subjects that's uh, been very, very emotive for a lot of people, an increasing number of people, is migration. And I'd just like to thank uh, the team that uh, sent me through information that enabled me to uh, compile part of this uh, news report. But let's have a look, first of all, at the Daily Mail that was, uh, uh, I think, 
um, running down anybody was concerned. So notice how they play the headline, our sleepy village streets will be overrun with young men when luxury four-star spa becomes the second hotel to house hundreds of migrants near the town. So if you dare stand up and challenge it, you're just part of a sleepy little village. Um, so two complexes, this is all in the Wigan area, um, but the top right hotel already uh, dealing with migrants, but this amazing complex uh, now about to uh, join the fray. Now, what's interesting is uh, local people are clearly on the case and are taking action. So this was sent through to me uh, and uh, it's part of a, a post by Maureen O'Byrne, who's an independent councillor. And she's been speaking out on what's been happening. Um, but it's uh, a question that was asked. Do councils get paid to take asylum seekers? And the background says in March 2022, the government announced its decision to move a full asylum dispersal model supported by grant funding as part of this move. Um, Wigan Council will receive 3,500 for every migrant that they uh, take on board. So they should receive about £420,000. So you can see how uh, effectively the government is bribing local authorities to accept the agenda. And here we've, we've got more comment um, that uh, the Premier Ian at Standish has been approached and asked whether they would like to take any extra cleaning at Killy Court. This is the main centre that's going to be used for accommodation. They've been told the pay will be good, but they will have a security guard with them while working at all times because the occupants are going to be all male, some ex-military and some with tags. What the hell is going on here? I'm contacting the council in Wigan today as well. Uh, but there was also some other comment which I found extremely interesting because if we have a look at this, um, aside from saying that four-star village hotel changes use, it says that when villagers were made aware, it was already too late. And it also said that councillors, without informing or gaining, gaining soundings, sent a letter to the central government actually condemning the change of use. But what we can see is really that central government steamrollers, the local authorities, and certainly the population as a whole. As a whole. In the mail article, uh, this was the final uh, part of the final quote by the Home Office. Note it's anonymous. We don't have anybody taking... Uh, responsibility for the statement. Uh, they said the Home Office has a statutory obligation to provide accommodation for asylum seekers who would otherwise be destitute while we consider their claim. So there's the emotional blackmail, uh, but it goes on. The significant increase in illegal, unnecessary and dangerous channel crossings has put our asylum system under incredible strain and made it necessary to continue to use hotels to accommodate some asylum seekers. But of course, it isn't the number of channel crossings that are actually causing the pressure. It's deeper policy. Uh, finally, they say this is why we will be using alternative accommodation options such as barges, which are more manageable for communities as our European neighbours are doing. So essentially, the claim from the Home Office is it's nothing to do with us. It's policy and our hands are tied. How big is the problem? Uh, well, surprisingly, the BBC was prepared to admit this and they were pushing it out through BBC Global. 
uh, a couple of days ago that migrant hotel costs rise to 8 million a day. Um, if we do some sums on that, I think that works out at 2.92 billion a year. And that's just housing. That doesn't include benefits and other administrative costs um, uh, as a result of the policies on the migrants. And the BBC article does manage to point at this, which is the Afghan Citizens Resettlement Scheme. And it's uh, said that, the ho uh, sorry, on the government's website, it says that it's announced further details of that scheme. So I'm putting it here really so that people can go and have a look at this stuff themselves. But it says the scheme will prioritise those who have assisted the UK efforts in Afghanistan and stood up values such as democracy, which we don't have in UK, women's rights, freedom of speech, which we don't have in UK, and rule of law, which we don't have in UK. And then it says vulnerable people, including women and girls at risk and members of minority groups at risk, including ethnic and religious minorities, LGBT plus. So these people can come and settle uh, 5,000 in the first year and up to 20,000 in the coming years. So this is nothing to do with boats. And uh, it goes on to talk about the Afghan relocations and assistance policy scheme, um, which has already settled thousands of Afghans and it goes on with, with a greater agenda. But if we think about what's happened to Afghan, sorry, Afghanistan itself, it's been wrecked. We've got hundreds of thousands dead and maimed. And now the Afghani culture is going to be undermined by Western uh, perversions. So where does this mess come from? Well, if we have a look at the Mail Online, this is going back to UK Column Report in 2021. Uh, we said that the Daily Mail was spinning the migration issue by simply trying to blame the French. And this, of course, is complete nonsense because, uh, I beg your pardon, something else is happening. If we have a look at a report again from the same day, the 1st of December, the UK column was pointing out uh, that the, it was the United Nations that was talking about governments adopting a global migration pact to help prevent suffering and chaos. And yet the suffering and chaos is what we have. And uh, this is the reality that the pact itself is one of the main sources of the migration agenda. And how can we be sure about what's going on here? Well, here is Antonio Guterres, Secretary General of the UN, uh, saying he challenged the myth that developed countries no longer need migrant labor it is clear that most need migrants across a broad spectrum of vital roles. So we can see who's pushing policy. And then if we have a look at Breitbart here, they were, they were um, uh, talking about the death of Peter Sutherland. And they entitled this mass migration advocate dubbed the father of globalization. So here's a man who was working with the UN, the European Commission, and Goldman Sachs at one time. Uh, but what is his key quote? It's this, the European Union should be doing its best to undermine the sense of national homogeneity in Britain and Europe in order to pave the way for multicultural states. So the migrants, uh, migrant problem is created in order to break down the nation state. And that is what we're seeing happening in UK, France and other countries in the European zone. So we had this slide back in 2021. And uh, essentially what we said is that mass migration 
is to be encouraged and facilitated to break down the nation state. And there is simply no care about the misery of the migrants or the nations from where they've come or the host nations, because this is globalist policy. But how does the government deal with this? Well, we put we uh, pulled uh, the not so pretty Patel out of the pile uh, because, of course, she was back on the fact of let's blame the French. But this is nothing to do with the French. This is globalist policy. And it doesn't matter how many people die or suffer. The agenda is to destroy UK and other Western countries from the inside. So we would say look past the migrants uh, because it's the policy that counts. And that policy is a globalist policy. And it is relatively easy to track down where it's come from. Uh, and Vanessa, just before we come on to Syria, I mean, massive profits being made in trafficking people to pursue this policy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we know that we've talked about this many times that trafficking, whether it's child trafficking, organ trafficking, trafficking for prostitution, um, those are the main harvests of war. And we're seeing it going on now, multiple reports coming out of Ukraine, both before 2014 and since 2014. So, yes. Okay, uh, let's move on to Syria. Yeah, so today I wanted to basically focus on what's happening down in the south, in Dara and Sweda. We've talked about uh, the, the emergence of a federalist movement down there to uh, push through the Israeli-US back, and I include UK in that um, I, agenda of balkanizing uh, Syria. So let's go to the UNGA. Um, and uh, a video uh, of the Israeli ambassador uh, holding up uh, an image of uh, Masa Amini, uh, the protester that was, according to Western legacy media, um, killed by Iranian security forces. The reality, of course, is she collapsed uh, of heart issues, ended up in hospital and died in hospital. But let's have a look at this. So the ambassador was, was uh, unceremoniously removed from the UNGA assembly. He, he, of course, raised this image during President Raisi's speech. But funnily enough, almost, I think it was the same day, protesters in Sweda in southern Syria also started to hold up uh, images of Massa uh, Armini. I'm sure there is absolutely no coincidence there. Of course, we talked about Israel's backing of this movement in southern Syria and how it intends to, by proxy, annex the territory, just as the US is using the Kurdish Contras to annex the northeast. So then if we move forward, the president of the Academy of Medical Sciences blasts the Lancet magazine for spreading lies about Iran's health sector. And Dr. Morandi made the remarks in a letter to an editor-in-chief of the Lancet Medical Journal, Professor Richard Horton, after the scientific magazine had published an article titled Offline, Masa Amini never forget. And he again um, attacked the Western media lies about what happened to Masa Amini. And then, of course, the, the 
amplification of the protests for the next few weeks in Iran a year ago. Um, this is a new article by um, a researcher for the Libertarian Institute, William Van Wagenen. This is at the cradle, an Israeli role in Syria's Soweda protest. I recommend uh, people read it. It's very detailed. It covers some of the things that I've already spoken about, but it, he's also dug into the connections between uh, the Druze sheikhs and uh, the Zionist uh, government. Um, again, then, of course, we see. So, so what these movements are protesting against is, one, Iran. They're protesting against Syria's allies. So they're protesting against Iran. And here you have the connection with Ukraine again. Syrians and Ukrainians suffer from the same killer, which, of course, they're claiming is Russia. And then moving on, you'll see another protester wearing a Sweda Ukraine or carrying a Sweda Ukraine uh, placard. Moving on. Um, now, this is, again, very interesting. So you'll remember I made a report about a congressman, Republican Congressman French Hill, entering the north of Syria a few weeks ago. Now, French Hill, uh, Brendan Boyle, these are tweets put out by uh, a, a, a Druze a journalist um, on Twitter. Um, so Brendan Boyle, who's a Democratic representative, French Hill, and then moving forward also um, another Republican uh, representative. Uh, whose name? Joe Wilson. I read from him. Thank you. <laughs> Um, and basically, this was all organized, as you can see on the left, by the Syrian Emergency Task Force. Now, the Syrian Emergency Task Force, based in Washington, headed up by Moaz Mustafa, who was responsible for taking John McCain to Syria in 2013 and introducing him to ISIS leaders and other terrorist uh, members, uh, and also responsible for uh, smuggling in the, the, the photographs and so on that have been largely discredited, that enabled um, the Caesar Act, which of course is, is punitive towards countries that come to the aid of Syria that was introduced by under the Trump administration. So just to give an example of how these organizations spin the reality. So here, the Syrian Emergency Task Force is claiming back in June, and it continues to claim now, that they broke the siege on Assad's siege on Rukban camp, really. Let's have a look again at the map, uh, Mike, if we can. And I've circled there uh, Al-Tanif, the U.S. illegal military base where they're training ISIS and other illegal armed groups. And then just below that, you'll see the Rukban camp that comes under the zone of U.S. influence and exists inside the 55-kilometer exclusion zone established by the United States to prevent the entry of Syrian humanitarian aid and Russian humanitarian aid. So who's telling the truth here? Well, Eva Bartlett, who has actually spoken extensively to refugees from Rukban camp, will explain very well in the various articles and interviews that she's done if people are interested in going to look at that. And then I just want to move on to some more um, um, oh, sorry. And, and this is basically so how the mainstream media is um, plugging what is going on in the South. Syria protests gain steam, challenging Bashar Assad as he tries to put <coughs> sorry, the civil war behind him. This same journalist who produced the tweets, Maher Sharafuddin, a Druze writer, journalist and opposition activist from Suweda, told CBS News that Hill, French Hill, had made it clear to Sheikh Hijiri um, the sheikh that they all contacted to give him support, 
um, that he hoped relations between the US and the local Druze community would deepen and Sharafuddin hoped the initial contact could signal new support in Washington for the opposition in Syria's civil war. So I don't think it can be any clearer than that, that this is an orchestrated um, revolution. Good news now, um, President Assad and the First Lady Asma al-Assad are in China. Um, they arrived yesterday, actually. Uh, they were invited for talks um, on, on the economy and trade and developing the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, but moving forward, Mike, please. We have a little bit of video. Yes, sorry. <laughs> So basically, I mean, this was quite an extraordinary event. It, it appeared to be very last minute. I'm sure it wasn't, but the news was released quite late. Um, China actually sent the plane to pick up the president and the first lady and to bring them to China, which was, again, quite extraordinary. They were invited to attend also the opening ceremony of the Asian Games. Uh, and if we can just move on, Mike. Yeah, sorry, the text uh, has... Uh, oh, don't worry. Not wrapped properly. Um, but... So... Um, Basically, what was discussed here, um, people can read this at their leisure, but I, just before I came on, I received uh, what was actually uh, discussed and uh, signed by the two presidents. So an economic cooperation agreement between the two countries and a memorandum of understanding on the common context of a cooperation plan within the framework of the Belt and Road Initiative, which Syria joined in January 2022. Interesting that Chinese President Jinping's Xi Jinping said China is ready to develop cooperation with Syria and jointly defend international justice under conditions of instability. Syrian-Chinese relations have existed for 67 years. They announced the establishment of the Syria-Chinese Strategic Partnership, which will be an important turning point in the history of bilateral relations in the face of unstable international situations. And we are keen to continuously make joint efforts to exchange firm support between the two countries and enhance cooperation between them to defend international justice and peace. Strong words here from Jinping. And Assad basically said this visit is important and its timing and circumstances as a multipolar world is being formed today that will restore balance and stability to the world. And it is the duty of all of us to seize this moment for the sake of a bright and promising future. So very positive. They also discussed um, the rebuilding of the electricity network and oil and gas fields in Syria. And I also wanted to point out the various meetings that are going on. Putin is due in Beijing in the next few weeks. There has been a meeting in Moscow with China. China urges deeper uh, trade uh, relations between uh, China and Russia, despite Western opposition, of course. So um, very positive news for Syria, I hope. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, it, positive news. This is not something we get a, a lot of, <laughs> Vanessa, is it? But uh, at the end of the day, if we could uh, deal with the people who want perpetual war in Ukraine and want war, it would seem, in any other country they can achieve it, we would be living in a, in a better world. But uh, yeah, thank you for giving us that. We're going to well, leave it there. Well, we're going to leave it there. I'm just going to encourage people who are subscribers to UK Column to join us for extra time. We're going to give you a little uh, sneak preview of 
part of the studio coming along as the new studio. We feel you might like to see that. And uh, have you got anything to say about yeah, just just a reminder we're uh, moving this weekend. So Monday is going to be uh, we're still going to be doing a little bit of work. So we won't have a news on Monday. We will have an interview going out in the one p.m. slot uh, on Monday. So the next news will be on Wednesday next week. Yeah, and I'll just add to that uh, from a comment in the uh, chat box today. Yes, Mike will be very busy because he's got the event tonight and the move uh, over the weekend. But we will all do our best for UK Column supporters. See you in a few minutes in Extra. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye.